I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I am uh, really thrilled and honoured to uh, be here with uh, Jumper this evening, a writer who, um, whose work I've loved for many years and in my smaller moments whose work I've uh, deeply envied also. Jumper's here in her capacity as an editor and translator this evening, though we will also be talking about her own uh, fiction writing and how that intertwines and informs those other processes. Jhumpa was born in London at the City of London Maternity Hospital, which uh, no longer exists. It burned down, but her birth certificate was uh, recovered before that happened, fortunately. Um, She moved to Rhode Island at the age of two. She grew up and was educated in the States. She's written four works of fiction in English, she wrote uh, Interpreter of Maladies, incredible short story collection in 1999, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2000. Her first novel, The Namesake, was published in 2003, um, was filmed um, by Mira Nair in 2006. Unaccustomed Earth, another incredible short story collection, won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award in 2008 and the extraordinary thing about that is the judges were so blown away by it that they skipped the shortlist phase of the competition completely and just awarded it to that book because uh, they were unanimous in their agreement that nothing else was going to was going to touch it and a second novel uh, came out in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize The Lowland. In 2018 um, a novel came out a third novel which was written in Italian Dove Mi Trovo uh, Jumper kindly gave me a uh, pronunciation lesson out the back. Now that came about after three years that Jumper spent living in Rome, which was an important step on the path that led to this beautiful book, the Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories, which really is uh, incredible. I've learned so much from this book over the last few weeks uh, reading it. I think it's going to inform my reading for, for years to come, given there are so many authors Uh, between these covers that that I just want to explore in depth now. We will be talking about the anthology, but first of all, I'd really like to understand a little more about your journey into Italian and into Italy. In your um, 
wonderful, <coughs> we have it here, yeah, in other words, this sort of series of reflections and essays on Jumper's relationship with Italian. Um, there's included this very haunting short story called The Exchange, which I think was the first piece of fiction you wrote in Italian. And you say in that book that it, it was only a couple of months later that you realised what the real subject of that book was. It was, it was about language, wasn't it, and your relationship with language? Yes. Um, good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, At thank last, you. she's speaking. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Chris, for this conversation and, and your presence here with me. Um, yeah, the, that story um, I wrote... Uh, it, it just sort of, it was one of those strange, I, I, I'm just coming from an event at the Italian Cultural Institute on, um, with Lisa Ginsburg, who is actually the granddaughter of one of the authors in my anthology, Natalia Ginsburg. And she wrote a book um, about her, her relationship and reading of Frankenstein, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I have, I've just come from an event in which we've been talking a lot about creation, invention, Surprise, creations that surprise you, um, creation as you know, the art of creation, what it means for an artist to create, and so on. And that story, for me, was one of those, and it wasn't quite Frankenstein's monster, but it felt a little bit like, what have I done? Um, I, I, it really did surprise me, and, and, sort of, uh, and also, in some sense, it, it troubled me, but I didn't reject it. I, 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 I tried to understand it. I tried to understand this strange creature that had mm. come out of me in a very intense way. I, mean, I remember <coughs> writing that story. It was a couple of months after we had moved to Rome in the fall, and I just wrote it in two days. I went, to, as I describe in the, in the book, I went to the library one day. I wrote half of it. I went back the next day, I wrote the second half of it, and it was done. And I mean, I don't know about you, but usually stories do not get written that way. No. As, as short as even if there, it's a story of five pages, it usually does not ever happen that way. So it's one of those creative moments that was very specific and strange mm. and stayed with me and really led to so many other things, right? So many other choices, decisions. But when you wrote that story, you'd, you'd moved to Rome. I'd moved to Rome. I, I, we moved to Rome in the summer. And then about a week after, I started writing in my diary in Italian, mm. just for some un, it, completely inexplicable reason. But like so much of writing, it just kind of, I mean, it comes from some place and you don't really have any control. Um, it just comes and you write it down and and then it either becomes something or it doesn't that's my it's always been my experience mm. with writing and and so the 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 writing the diary writing just one day i mean i can see you know there's a day when it switches over and that went on for a while for a few months and then and then in the fall i remember writing the story the exchange the oscambio it's called in italian and, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I, I, and I didn't do anything with it for a while. And then I showed it to a couple of people uh, to ask them if it was even a story. So really, I mean, in some sense, the Frankenstein uh, conversation is helpful because I, I just, I didn't even know what to make of it mm. because it was a short story in another language. And yet I had produced it. 
Uh, and yet I didn't know if it was a story or not. And I didn't even know if it had any value. And then as I just, and I didn't know what it was about. Ostensibly it was about a translator. It is about a translator. In fact, the first line is something to the effect of there was once a translator or something like that, mm. which now in hindsight strikes me as, in, you know, hmm, what was going on there. And then as I recount in, in, in other words, it was some months later that I was running in the park and I realized that the story was about language because it's a story about someone who loses something mm. that, that is hers. And then doesn't recognize something, doesn't recognize something that was hers, and then recognizes it in a new way. I realized that that's what I was trying to work out, and and that that was that that the language in question wasn't necessarily English or Italian, but just language, mm-hmm. language, and the fluctuating state of language in my life. Yes, because you've written about a sort of troubled relationship with both Bengali or mother tongue. Which you say, yes, you could speak it, but you couldn't write or read it, and and you sort of spoke it with an accent when you were in India, and and English you refer to quite devastatingly in that same book, I think, as a sort of stepmother, as a stepmother, also an ex-boyfriend that you've that you've tired of. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> but Italian, you say, is something is a language you love. Why? Why is Italian? Why? How did it? How did Italian become? that language, the language that you can have that sort of joyful relationship with? Because it was a language I chose, I think, for myself, Mm. you know, um, just the whole problem of identity that I've had all my life, wondering who I am and what I am, um, obviously the linguistic component is a part of that, a huge, Mm. huge uh, part of that. Perhaps the most fundamental, central part of that, um, <coughs> defining part of that in some sense, given that I do end up becoming a writer, right? So words, language becomes mm-hmm. everything to me. But I think it, in, it represented in the beginning many things, but a sort of escape, uh, refuge, freedom from pressures, imposed expectations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because no one was asking me to do it. Mm-hmm. No one asked me to study Italian. No one asked me to learn it. No one expected me to do it. It was something I chose to do, and I kept doing it. And then I began to notice certain, you know, I, I, had, I had gone a certain distance, and so I was noticing certain, oh, okay, I can do this, and I can say this, and I can write this, and I can think this. And, and so it was a process, but, um, but I liked... Uh, it, it was it was the first time that I really, you know, I went I went in in pursuit of it. I courted it in some sense. I went mm-hmm. after it, and I so I did love it, I, and I do love it. But there was that sense of, you know, desiring something that wasn't mine, which is the basis of all desire, right? If it's yours, you don't really desire it anymore. Um, in the same way, yeah. and you know, you can love it, but there's not that same impetus impetus to somehow get to it and and I think the thing that's interesting about Italian is that that relationship sort of remains even though my relationship has evolved quite a bit from those earlier you know from the beginning um, but but it will always be slightly out of reach and so that conditions my relationship to it still in pursuit mm-hmm. 
And when you moved to Italy and you, you were reading authors, that some of which I'm sure eventually ended up in here, how were you, how were you choosing what to read? What, where, where was that sort of, where were those choices coming from? Well, um, I mean, the reading in Italian was a very conscious decision. I mean, a lot of people say, well, when did you choose to write in Italian? And th that question I can't really answer because that was more, as I said, more mysterious, more came from sort of some unknown, and I didn't know sort of what to do with it. It sort of just happened, and then, and then, and then I considered it, and I moved forward. But the reading, the decision to read in Italian was a very conscious decision because I was, and that this happened before I moved to Rome. I was still living in New York. I was studying Italian diligently with my teacher, the last of my various teachers in America. And she would give me books to read. Many of the authors who are in this book, um, mm -hmm. I discovered thanks to her, actually. And I would read them. And then, and then, and then there was a moment when the, the plans to move to Rome became concrete. And I thought, well, what's a way that I can sort of prepare myself even while being in the U.S. to be in Italy. And because my goal, to, you know, one of the main goals, principal goals, was to, you know, cross a certain threshold with, with Italian and to be able to really speak it and to really have, allow it to enter into me, not realizing it would lead to all of these other things. But um, in any case, and so I stopped reading in English. Mm. So around January, I remember, it was winter, around this time, of 2012, which is now quite a long time ago, I stopped reading in English. I just stopped. And then everything, I, I just read in, in Italian everything I could. And I read really slowly and I wasn't reading very, you know, my so, sort of like my diet radically changed. And it, and it was nutrition on a completely different order and, and a completely different everything. Uh, you know, I, I would take three weeks to read one short story. But that was, that was a decision and and that kept that picked up speed and grew much more you know wide ranging once i got to italy because mm -hmm. once i moved to rome i made friends um i already could speak italian <coughs> fairly well um well enough to make some friendships and i met a, a lot of writers they asked me what are you reading and i would say well i'm reading moravia and okay well if you really want to know Italian literature, you have to read. And then they would say, you have to read this writer or that writer, you know. And so a lot of these authors came to me through sort of pronouncements because mm. they're, you know, here's this person who comes and says, I want to read Italian, more Italian. And I didn't know so many. I mean, I, I was so, you know, I had such a narrow vision, limited vision. I didn't study Italian contemporary literary, literature at all in college, um, in any language, but I didn't study, I wasn't an Italian major. I didn't, I, it just wasn't my world. I didn't, I never had, I'd never lived in Italy. I didn't have Italian friends, really. So I, I just wasn't in that, you know, dimension mm -hmm. until I got to Rome and then everything opened up and then I would read the newspaper and I would read the literary pages and I would, you know, say, well, who's this person? And I would go to the library or a bookstore and find them and read them. But mostly, and as I meant, as, as will be clear if you go to the back of this anthology and look at my acknowledgments, al almost the entire book rose out of sort of word of mouth and, and relationships and friendships and people who, who, who sometimes literally would take a book out of their bookcase when I was at their home and say, go read this book, you know, you won't be sorry. 
and and I almost never was, and mm -hmm. and and so it was just remarkable to. I mean, I think the greatest gift of all of this sort of diligent language learning for me. I mean, yes, there was the the pleasure of being able to live in a foreign city, a new city, make friends, set up a life, enter into the culture in some sense. That was all very stimulating and wonderful and exciting and and reinvigorating for me as a person. But I think the real gift was I could suddenly read. I could suddenly read with with, with relative ease. And I, I remember the first year I was still struggling. I still had kind of the training wheels, you know, and I remember reading with dictionary and the notebooks and the underlining the words. and and But I kept doing it. I kept doing it. And then suddenly those training wheels came off. Mm. And I had found my equilibrium as a reader in another language. And that was so thrilling. And that, and, and that I, I, I just couldn't give that up, you know, so I just kept going. And, and then all of these new authors started to enter into the into the picture. And now you've got that deep knowledge of Italian literature. How does it, how does it feel looking back to the Anglophone, uh, Anglophone world and, and uh, speaking generally, not about this erudite audience, of course, but speaking generally, how, how do you view you know, our knowledge of, of Italian literature that seems to be limited to sort of, like, I, I knew a few of the names in here but hadn't read widely of them, but a lot of the names I'd never heard of at mm. all. Wouldn't Italian instantly recognize all these no, names? No, no. Um, no, and I, I think that's, uh, that also struck me, because I, I think one thing, I mean, when you come from outside, when, you, when, you don't, when you're not on the inside of something, and I've never really been on the inside of anything in my life, so that I'm always on the outside of whatever I'm doing, but certainly in the context of moving to Italy at the age of 45, having just kind of more or less figured out how to speak a language and live in it and, you know, shop and pay bills and everything in a new language. And so using that perspective, that kind of fresh arrival, um, uh, you, you roam in, in a way that's entirely your own mm. because there's no one telling you, you do it this way and you do it that way and this reader, then you re read this writer and then this writer. I didn't have that. In fact, and there are times when I wished when I was putting this book together, I would if I could have one wish, fairy godmother, one wish, it would be to go back in time and go to a liceo classico. And so then I would have this formation, the Italian formation, so that I would have the whole kind of panorama of all the authors and how they all fit into one another and, you know, beginning with. But I didn't have that. I had friends who had that. You know, so I have all these friends who have gone to liceo classico. So they, well, then, so they have the formazione, the, this formation that I didn't have. So I had to sort of make my own way without the proper training. But maybe that makes it, well, it certainly makes it different because, <laughs> and also because I'm coming, into a, I'm coming into a literary culture which has welcomed me, which has um, befriended me, which has, which, has shared, which has been so generous toward me and telling me, sharing with me, you have to know about this, you have to know about that. But at the same time, I'm sort of, grateful and, and trying to make up for all of these sort of holes and gaps. And, and so the, again, friendships come into play because they could, they could say, well, you need, to, you need to round out your understanding of what was happening in the 1930s, or you need to, round, you, know, you, had, you need to understand what happens after Verga and what he represents, or Pirandello, or you know, one of these, some of these cornerstone um, 
authors that are also in the collection. But I, I think that that renders this collection unconventional. Um, it gives it a more eclectic spirit, even for Italians. And in fact, it, I mean, to answer your question specifically, I've yet to meet an Italian, even very erudite, you know, professors of literature, et cetera, writers, who really have a grip on all 40 of these authors. I mean, even, you know, my more kind of well-read, clearly well-read friends will say, I mean, I was just at a dinner, I was at dinner last night with a friend of mine, a writer friend, very intelligent woman, very well-read, house full of books, um, who said, oh, I've never read Bontempelli. I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to that. I realize, you realize that it's impossible to read everything. I mean, there's so many books I haven't read. It's just the way it is. I'm sure if someone made an anthology of English short stories or American short stories, whatever, I would not necessarily know all of the, especially if it weren't something designed to really play to a certain, to have a certain, how shall I say, have a certain objective in terms of, Mm -hmm. well, these are the best authors or the most significant authors or the most representative authors. I didn't have any kind of agenda of that kind. I just wanted to represent, I wanted to gather together writers who were speaking to me very deeply and writers who who, who were teaching me and inspiring me and, and then what was really amazing is that the more I looked into the lives of these authors, I saw so much of myself in their stories and their, their paths and their creative journeys. That was really a sort of unexpected element of this project. And you said also that um, you were sort of amazed by, by the amount of people who, who had knowledge of short stories from kind of all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And I know that... Uh, I know that short story writers are constantly looking for this utopia where short stories are, are, are held up above all other things. Um, but is it, is it a particularly prized form in Italy, in your experience? I, I think short stories have, you know, they, and this is true in all, all of the places I've sort of known, lived, what, what have you. I mean, I think people love short stories. And people love short stories. I think writers love short stories. I think... The, the publishing industry, the editoria, you know, the editors are terrified of short stories. So there's this, there are these three experiences, there are these three, right? So that is also true in Italy. So if I say to my editor, my Italian editor tomorrow, I'm writing a collection of short stories, I know, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, I just know. And Even it's, if Jim Pelleheri says that. And they do, and they, and they do, because I am writing short stories in Italian. <laughs> and if I say this, are you sure? Are you sure they're short stories? Are you sure that that's what they are? And I know that's the case in the United States. I, I know because interpretive maladies, you know, went through, uh, was, was rejected by so many, mm. not even editors, by agents who said, they're short stories, I don't want to handle this, please write a novel. And then of course there's always the exception to the rule and we, we always hope for that. But, but what I'm trying to say is I think there's this interesting, you know, short stories have this interesting you know, they occupy this interesting space in, in the world in, in which, you know, the, the editors just want them to go away, um, usually. Not always, but we can make a, a generalization here, I think. But writers, they're essential nutrition for writers and, and I think, for readers. And, and so this was also the case in, in Italy. I can't say they're more highly prized or, or less, less so, but I can say that when I... When, I, when the project became formal and then I started to do a whole other round of, you know, everyone I knew, every coffee I had, every dinner time I went to dinner, 
hey, I'm putting together this book of short stories. What are, you know, tell me. I'm thinking, uh, who are some writers you like? And that's, it struck me how, you know, people I knew, not sometimes people I didn't even know very well, would have very specific opinions about, not only about authors, but of story, very specific stories. And I would keep lists and, you know, um, take notes and, 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 and so forth. And people were very generous. You know, people would say, so, sometimes people would take a couple of days to think about it. And they would say, you know, then they would, you know, send me an email saying, you know, look at these five, mm -hmm. you know, these, these, these are five that I always loved when I was at university or whatever. So it was really, it was, again, so much was about these dialogues I was having with people. But that's how I learned Italian in the first place, you know, it was through the generosity of people who taught me mm. and were patient with me and, and were willing to speak with me at a stage when my Italian was clearly, you know, when, at a stage when they clearly could have spoken better English than I could Italian. Mm -hmm. And yet they were patient and allowed me, like a child, to arrive at a certain point. Right. You know, I'm very struck by that. And grateful for that, and I'm, I'm I'm grateful for this this generosity as well in terms of, you know, sharing their passion, their their respect for certain authors and stories that I would mm -hmm. never have found otherwise. You know, I would have I just wouldn't have any other means, other than locking myself up for 25 years and trying to read a lot of stuff. But <laughs> but they opened doors for me. You know, and then you were kind of opening doors for them because you were bringing them in into the Anglophone world, sometimes in your own translations. I was rereading um, Interpreter of Maladies because I thought, well, it says Interpreter in the title. It's mm -hmm. got to be relevant, right? And there was this passage where Mrs. Das says, there's a tour guide taking um, an American woman around and her family, and the tour guide works for a doctor, and he translates uh, Gujarati patients' illnesses to the, to the doctor, and, and, Mrs. and he thinks it's a very mundane job. And Mrs. Das said... Oh, it's such a big responsibility. Mm. That she also calls it romantic. But mm. That's left more mysterious, which says it's a big responsibility because you could get it wrong or you could tell them anything and then you'd get the wrong diagnosis. And I was thinking this in terms of this, say, uh, Corrado Alvaro, for example, the last story in the book, a wonderful story called Barefoot. You know, my experience of Alvaro is, is through, through you, through your mm -hmm. translation. Do you feel this sense of responsibility Enormous. when you're translating? Enormous. I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's very intense. Yes, I feel mm. tremendously responsible. I, I, sp I feel responsible as a translator, of course, and I've, I have felt responsible for the other, you know, other things I've translated in, in recent years. But, but, but apart from the works I translated here, I feel responsible as, as a, on the whole. I res feel responsible. I also you know, I researched the lives of these authors. I wrote these, you know, kind of brief introductions. And there was so much information to try to distill. And that was so difficult. And, and there were also so many different accounts sometimes of things that happened, when they happened, how they happened, that just the sheer complication of some of the editorial histories of these stories, you know, that were published in local newspapers, magazines that no longer exist, journals, you know, sort of digging through all of this, you know, there were writers, there are several writers here who, uh, a very interesting aspect of the book, were obsessive rewriters, 
So they would write a story, they would publish it, and then they would republish it, they would rework it, they would republish it. So someone like Silvio D'Arzo, um, uh, Romano Bilenki, um, you know, they were people who were just, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let the story just be somewhere. They would say, oh, I'm going to do another version. <laughs> so trying to get the, trying to get all of this information and get it right was really uh, an enormous challenge. And, uh, you know, there were writers who write, who, there are writers who write under, Pseudonyms are writers who are writing under fascism. There are writers who are, you know, having, they write, you know, Natalia Ginsburg, for example, writes under a pseudonym because she isn't able to publish under her own name when she first writes her collection of stories and then she republishes it under her, uh, her, her name, her given name. You know, all of these details that, that are hard to, I mean, we live in this world of you put into your phone and you think reality facts are coming out, but it's not. It's not so easy. It wasn't that. It wasn't easy. It was. It was very challenging, and it required a lot of research and 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 relying on people to help me to get all of this as as right as we could. And even now, you know, there are things that you know, there there are tiny things that I you know still I realize. Oh, it actually should have been you know. So so that component was also well, in the translation. In the in well, the I'm sure in the translation. translation. In the, in the translation, I'm positive because there is no fixed, there is no definitive translation. Mm -hmm. So if I go back and look at the Alvaro story tonight, I will change it, right? Uh, I know I will. That's just the nature of translation. It's the nature of writing, if yeah. you think about it. It's just that I think we've been conditioned to abandon the work and move on. Some of us, some of us maybe not. Some of us feel compelled to return and rework. But in terms of, tra of translation, that's part of what translation is. And usually it's not, I mean, it's usually it's another translator who comes along and says, mm -hmm. you've got all this stuff wrong. This is totally, totally, completely off. You made so many mistakes. I'm going to come and now save the world <laughs> and retranslate X author, right? And, and then the process just goes on and on, at, you know, ad infinitum, because there is no, um, there is, because language is a moving target. Mm -hmm. So... That the, tra the translation will always betray itself in some sense, and because translation is is then a creative act, there's no, yes. there's a lot of subjectivity in it. Right? Well, it's inter it's an interpretive act, right? So it's 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 the translator's responsibility to interpret it in an, in one way, and hope that that interpretation is a reasonable one, but it's an interpretation always. Mm. So in terms of. Um, we do need to talk about Italo Calvino, of course. Of course. Um, and there's a, there's a story in here, which I think is a chapter from Mr. Palomar, mm -hmm. his 1983 novel. Um, but that wasn't, did William Weaver, who translated sort of the majority of Calvino's work, I think, did, did he translate that chapter? But no. it didn't, he never translated no, it. No, no, this story, I, I, this um, story came to me because uh, Giovanna Calvino, who's my friend, um, said, look, I said, you know, I'm doing this book and what, you know, I, I, I have to include something about your father, even though he's, you know, everybody knows Italo Calvino is one of the authors who has comfortably, safely, successfully actually made the journey mm. out of Italian into English and many other languages. But I still have to have Italo Calvino because I have a painting of him by my doorway. So, I mean, it's just, he just means too much to me to, to not put in. So she said, listen, I, there's a story which is, it's been published 
in the Meridiano, the, the series I referred to in the book, which are these kind of definitive volumes, critical volumes of authors. So in the Meridiano of Calvino, you can find the story, which is a chapter in Palomar, which he wrote and then le- um, uh, took out. Mm. So it, it's, it, it pertains to the world of, of that novel, but it's, you know, it's one that didn't end up in the book, and so we, uh, so I decided, yes, this, this, this is the story, and that excited me that it would be new. And then I actually devoted, I taught a class, a translation workshop at Princeton a year and a half ago, while, when this anthology was, you know, kind of in the, in, in progress, and I taught a translation workshop called To and From Italian, which I taught in Italian, with a colleague from the Italian department. And uh, we had five students and we worked with, the conceit was to translate uh, a, a few Italian authors into English and a few English language authors into Italian and to sort of look at the points of connection um, between them and especially looking at Italian authors who were very deeply influenced by American and or English literature, i.e. Calvino, uh, Pavese, mm. uh, and 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 um, and so on, and then uh, translating outside, translating those authors into English, and so sort of doing this reverse thing, uh, and then the final project was to work collectively on this Calvino text. So it was really like a kind of almost like a surrealist experiment, <laughs> but so because each um, each student, there were only five of them, but they were wonderful, and each of them translated a section. And then they brought their contributions to the class, and then we all, you know, commented each section to death. So there were, you know, each co- paragraph translated by one student then had uh, four student comments plus my comments and my um, colleague Sara Teardo's comments. And then so each one became everyone else's paragraph as well. And then we arrived at a first draft. That was the goal for the end of the semester. And then Sara and I um, reworked it and sort of made sure all the joints were fitting together, as it were, and kind of tonally smoothed it out. And 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 so that's the the story behind the Calvino story, which is an amazing story and the only story in the anthology that actually refers specifically to translation. The, the word translation, traduzione, is in that story. Yeah. Only that story of all of the stories. So. You know, and it's an incredible story. It doesn't, you know, it's not like a, like an offcut or oh, I can see why you left that out. It's 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 witty. It's mm, brilliant. Mm-hmm, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's really wonderful. Um, but well, first of all, kudos to Penguin for not emblazoning features a new Italo Calvino story across the uh, across the cover in twenty point script. Um, you presumably read Calvino first via William Weaver. I did. Yeah. I did. I read Calvino in English. I mean, he was one of the authors. There were a handful of authors I knew from my reading, from anthologies, stories that would crop up in mm. something like Paris Review or whatever. Um, but there were very few. I had read, who had I read in English? Um, I had read Moravia, yes, uh, Pavese, mm. Morante, uh, Pirandello, um, Calvino. I think I had a book by Grazia Deletta in English, which I never read, so I read her for the first time in Italian. But very few, as you can see, the rest I all I, the rest I discovered in Italian, and so 
one thing that's very satisfying to me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Me personally, right, is that um, this book is about to be translated into Italian. So, um, <laughs> that's, that sounds like an easy job. For it's the, uh, <laughs> well, but it's very like, you know, it's, 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 it never ends. Right. But so I, well, now, and those, those biographical capsules, they really are stunning. They're incredible. I, I've developed a reading list as long as my arm from <laughs> reading those. And there's a 12 page introduction. That's like a masterclass essay. It's, it's incredible. So that's, that's what's being translated. So, yeah. So basically the, my, um, editorial apparatus, the curatela is, has been translated first by somebody else and then by me because she sort of did a, a version of it, which is correct, but not completely to my liking mm-hmm. because just totally, I felt that it was not quite how I wanted to sound. Um, so then I reworked everything and changed all the verb tenses and, and, and adjusted also certain choices, word choices. So, you know, I mean, she certainly did all of the heavy lifting of, of translating that material, mm. but then I, I reworked it. And then of course the stories will remain in their original language. So it's a kind of, again, uh, crossing of, you know, so, so it will be, I think it will be, I'm eager to have this book in English. And I'm also eager to have the book in Italian because, I mean, for selfish purposes, I will, I will read the stories in Italian. Yeah. So I will enjoy having the bound volume <laughs> in Italian. But when I go back to Princeton to teach, and if I'm teaching in a situation where the students don't have Italian, I will be very grateful for this volume because that way at least we can read the stories in translation. And then the, the ideal scenario is that a student reads the stories in translation and is struck by them enough to want to perhaps study Italian. And then, mm-hmm. you know, because so much of, I mean, I remember in high, uh, in high school and college, I, I took a year of Russian and that sole purpose was to try to read Tolstoy. I never got there, but that was the motivation right? That was the reason. That was what took me into the language. Oddly, that wasn't why I started to study Italian. And yet I've done so much. I I managed to, you know, cover much more distance with the Italian and read a lot more in Italian than I ever did in Russian. You said there was one, just only the Calviano story talks about translation, but there's an extraordinary number of the authors featured 
you know, in those uh, biographical essays you've written, an extraordinary number of them seem to have been translated. Almost all of them. Almost, Almost all of them. And this was one of the things that I found so amazing as I was digging deeper into the world of these writers and their lives. I was so struck and humbled by how many of them devoted, you know, not just one or two, but just a lot of energy, significant energy, to to translation, to translating novels, to transla- translating poetry. And, and of course, if you're a writer and you're translating, there's a kind of alchemical reaction that starts to happen between what you, what you would have written on your own, in your own language or whatever, dominant language, and then what starts to happen when you start translating and entering into, te- into text as a translator. Mm-hmm. And then that, that has its own kind of, you know, uh, repercussions. And then those cadences and... Uh, word choices and and ways of structuring things start to enter into your brain and consciousness and I found this fact really remarkable and I I try to draw attention to it and in fact also in the biographical um, sketches I made a point of saying you know among these all of these other things that this author accomplished or did or how they lived I said and she translated John Donne, and you know, so I, I, I want a Catherine Mann. I'm thinking of Cristina Campo. She's in my head. You know, a, a, an amazing writer who translated John Donne and and Catherine Mansfield. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, and published them, published these translations. Many of the authors here are quite famous for the for the for the books they translated. So they were really, you know, they 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 just it was sort of taken for granted. It was taken for granted. I think that they. That part of their job, their responsibility, if you will, as writers, was also to translate and to be attuned mm. to other languages, other literatures, whether French literature, Lala Romano uh, translated Flaubert, um, uh, Natalia Ginsburg translated, famously translated Proust. So many of these authors translated English and American authors. It's incredible, incredible, mm. uh, humbling. Also, Russian authors. I mean, so mostly European languages, yes. But, you know, someone like Landolfi also studies many other languages. And I just, I think this, this is a new model for me, personally, of how to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And so each of these 40 authors, when I say I, it's, I see myself in them, and in some sense this book has, beautifully surprising in that it, it has sort of ended up being a kind of refracted self-portrait of, of you know, uh, in that I, so many of these authors led lives or made choices or did things that I, I can completely, I see the value of, and I try to learn from them and from their example. Mm. But those authors, and this is, uh, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to two questions, not to two questions, to lots of questions. Those authors translated, and as you say, learned from that, and then wrote fiction in. Italian, mm-hmm. whereas you taken the more extreme, the, the the Beckett position, say, and you're you're translating, but then you're also writing fiction in Italian. Do you think at some point you might write in English and Italian, or do you think you're going to stay in Italian, or are you saying one day as it comes? I don't know, one day, but no. But I will say, pertaining to the the anthology, there are authors in the anthology who wrote in different languages, not just Italian, uh, right? Tabuch, so Tabuki writes Tabuki. in Portuguese, uh, Alba de Céspedes writes in French, mm-hmm. um, 
Beppe Fenoglio is an amazing uh, case of an Italian who completely, you know, is obsessed with English, translates Milton. Milton, who wrote also in Italian, incidentally, some poems. His character is actually named Johnny Milton, his main character, um, as it were. Uh, but he created he creates his own sort of strange language, which is an amalgam of English and mm. and Italian. And he goes so far as to tell his readers that he thinks that some of his you know novels are actually translations that he because he composed them he drafted them in english right he, he you know so he did you know what he did was similar to in some sense to what i'm experimenting with and and i think that was another aspect that i found really striking about these authors i mean one that they almost all of them worked as translators thought as translators do that their identities were their literary identities were very you know they were part writer part translator and also that they, now I've completely lost track of what I was going to say. So they were translators and, well, and writers in their own writing. No, there was something else I wanted to say, but it's completely disappeared. <laughs> well, it'll come to me. Take the opportunity to nip into that gap. And uh, do, we, do we have questions? Yes. Hi. Um, why do you think editors are so scared of short stories? I think they think they don't sell. Why else would they be afraid? I mean, they just want to sell books. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, this is a fact. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's their job. Right? So. But they're still scared of you, and you sold hundreds of thousands. Of... But, but the, I, don't, I still don't think... I don't know. I mean, then people think... They, they, once you, the people are greedy, you know? It's like, oh, but they can never be made into a movie, mm. you know? And that's when the real... I don't know. I don't know what it is. But that's just what I feel. That's what I've felt my entire life as a writer from very beginnings until today mm. if i say short story there's just a party empties out very quickly <laughs> and it's time for everyone to go home and for me to do the dishes so i don't i just don't say it anymore <laughs> you know i just do it and let's see what happens yeah, yeah. sounds like a good policy mm -hmm. and thank you um jimper actually I've, I've only ever read you in italian i'd say so in altra parola and dove mi trovo okay. um and congratulations a beautiful beautiful book beautiful novel but uh, I, I'm interested by the, by the idea that what, what would Italian give you that English couldn't give you when you sit to write, apart from the il desiderio to, to, to write in Italian, what can Italian give you that English couldn't? Well, at this point, it gives me a completely different attitude toward myself, the world, and therefore my writing. I mean, I think last week I was in Cortina with my daughter, and then my husband eventually came in. I have no skiing experience. Uh, but she really wanted to go, and it was her. Uh, and I was invited to talk about Dovinitrovo, actually. So we went, and we thought, well, let's just try this whole skiing thing. Um, and so I thought, well, downhill, it's troppo tardi, but maybe cross country, that looks easy, you're doing And so everything was going very well until there was a discesa, which is the downhill, which was like, you know, from here to the ground. <laughs> And, I, and suddenly things were going really badly, and you know I was like grabbing on. And the second day, I figured it out. And the teacher kept saying, you have to change your body centro. You, know, you have to change. This is your center of gravity. And suddenly I realized that's what Italian is. I've changed my center of gravity. And it's just learning how to carry yourself differently in a way that's a little bit freaky, a little bit scary, but if you don't do it, you know, you, you have to, so, so the language shift has given me this new 
way of moving through life and thoughts and et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's the most, you know, to distill it, that's the most interesting thing about the whole thing for me. One can elaborate and say it's not just a center of gravity, it's also a kind of point of view. I, I can say when I write in Italian, I, it's a little bit like I'm always in viaggio, I'm always traveling, so I always have this kind of very pared-down relationship to things, and I'm not completely... I'm not at home, so I don't rely on sort of the things that we rely on when we're not on a trip and when we're not living out of a suitcase and we make certain choices and we hope that what we put into the suitcase will be appropriate if it rains, if it's this, if it's comfortable shoes or that, but we hope because it's not, it's not a given mm. that we can just dig into our closet, our big deep closet and get out whatever we need for any situation. So writing in Italian is like that. It's like, okay, this is very stimulating. Everything feels very new. And I'm, you know, I'm seeing things differently. I'm seeing different things, literally. Or I'm seeing the same things differently. And my relationship to them is much more point to point. I mean, just the way that when you travel, you sort of feel things, you know, the meals taste different because you don't know where they're coming from exactly. And you hope the restaurant's good. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of, that's a metaphor that's very helpful to me because that's the relationship. And I, and I think there are some people who need that. You know, I think of what Ishmael says in Moby Dick, you know, just that love of the sea and, mm. and needing that experience and not wanting to be on land, but needing to be out at sea and needing to be roaming and looming, you know, looming, so that first chapter, you know, where he, he sets that out. I, that really speaks to me. And I think what I, I think shifting languages is a way of, of being, you know, of my way of, of, of being out at sea and not being in Nantucket at the, <laughs> at the inn, you know. You're part of the world. There was a question over here, I think. You put yourself into the minds of Bengalis and migrant Bengalis and now obviously in the minds of Italians. Is there any similarity between how Bengalis and Italians think? I think there's similarities in how we all think. I don't, I don't have any real relationship to kind of these national concepts. I know that sounds very idealistic, but it's just the way it is because I really have never been able to feel that I was any, I have no relationship to that kind of identity. I was raised by people who had a sense of their national identity and, and a sense of national identity that was then very much kind of compromised and complicated by their journey across the world. And so what being Bengali meant when they were growing up in Calcutta suddenly meant something very different once they were out of Calcutta. And this is often the case for people who, who emigrate and go away and then the, the relationship to the identity becomes all the more kind of charged and loaded and exaggerated because you're not in the place where it's sort of discreetly reinforced in your day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go out and kind of keep it alive in this artificial way. So that was my upbringing. I understand that nations exist, that there was a moment in history and things were carved up and boundaries were set and places were called this versus that and that tribes of people then, you know, began to call themselves this and that. But it's just not something I relate to on any level, personally, as an adult. I've just completely, I do have no 
connection to that. And it was very interesting yesterday, someone asked me, I think someone asked me today as well, so what's the deal, what's, what's this Italian story all about? Like, what's the difference between an Italian story and, a, and an English story? And I thought, well, one is written in Italian <laughs> and one is written in English. And that's basically the difference. Yes, it, we can say, you know, they talk about characters who are Italian and have Italian experiences because, you know, whatever, we can, we, I can go that far. But in the end, if you really think about it, there is no difference, which is why works can be translated and speak to millions of readers who have never had those experiences, right? And this is the power of literature. Mm -hmm. This is the great power of literature. This is the beauty of literature. This is the gift of literature, is that stories that are Bengali stories, stories that are Italian stories, stories that are Russian stories, they are all speaking about, because there are only a few stories. I, I think we can, we can more or less boil down certain human experiences that really, that, that there's a finite number in some sense that keep getting worked out and worked out over and over and over again because each human being's experience is different and unique and individual regardless of where they're from. And that's why, that's why writers keep writing and are born and keep working and producing but, but really, I've always looked to myths, mythology. Myths were the first thing I learned how to read, literally in English, when I was a child. My textbook, when I was a child, was a textbook in which, and this is very interesting, it was a, they were little summaries of Roman mythology, not even Greek mythology. And I think back to this now, thinking, that's so interesting that I was a child growing up in the 1970s in Rhode Island, United States, and my textbook was consisted of story after story of all of the all of the classical mythology declined <coughs> into the Roman with the Roman names. But the reason myths have always been so reassuring to me is that they are stories that belong to nobody and to everybody, mm -hmm. right? And they don't have authorship. And and they and if you look at mythology, they have counterparts everywhere, which is why there is no difference, because all of those stories are interlocking, right? So if you look at Greek mythology, Indian mythology, whatever, I mean, all of these stories are, are talking to each other in a very basic way across huge space, time, cultural, particular, mm. you know, things that do divide us. So that's my sense, you know, and, and I work, so I work against the, these ways of closing ourselves off and, and, and labeling things too much. I say in the biography about Primo Levi, about how his, how his, his, his suspicion, his deep suspicion and, 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 and intolerance of labels. If there's mm -hmm. anything he was intolerant of, it was, it was labels, and which he writes about in the periodic, periodic table, which is striking because he was a chemist. And he wrote a book of called of all things a periodic table, which is literally about you know naming the elements and in some sense a sort of active labeling and classifying the world, the, the elements that that exist that make us that inform us and surround us, and yet he he was someone like these authors, so many of these authors who resisted being labeled, who kept reinventing himself as a writer who wrote under pseudonyms at certain points, who changed his style, who changed genres, who was a translator, 
who knew English well enough to be able to, to intervene heavily on his English translations. He, in fact, trans he wrote the poem. There's a poem that prefaces, if this is a man, and he wrote that poem in English for the English edition. But so many of these authors did that. They were in a constant state of reinvention. And, and they had, a, I think, extraordinarily fluid, open attitude toward what identity even is. Mm-hmm. And, and this was one of the things that really hit home for me personally. And, and I, but I think this is linked to their identity as translators, because I think if you're translating, if you are a translator, and I have become a translator literally sort of later in my life, but I was really born a translator because I was always translating my whole life. I was always trying to, running back and forth, trying to explain things to different people that I knew. And I think that that reality means that you are always seeing yourself in another. You can't possibly have, you can't be kind of walled off in one sense of yourself. And and therefore the, the boundary starts to fall away, just the boundary of who you even are. And I think these authors had that. I think this, these authors had that, that many of them had that attitude, which makes this work, this, you know, made putting this work together so illuminating for me personally. You know, in Italy right now, there's so much debate about Italy and who is Italian and what, what, what defines mm-hmm. an Italian. Um, and these debates are quite painful to me, given my now my deep connection to the country, and yet the sense of well, the definition of an Italian is you know very in this little box here, and this is problematic not only for me but for millions of Italians, actual Italians who are born and raised in Italy, who may not feel that they fit into that box. Mm-hmm. This is a huge problem. So I hope that you know when Italians read this book and look at back at these writers, they will see how even in, Ital- in the Italian tradition, if you will, um, at least these, the example of these authors in the 20th century, so much experimentation. Maybe this is what I was trying to say before the thing that flew out of my head, that the, 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 the intense experimental vein of almost all of these writers. And I think, again, because if you're a translator, every translation is an experiment. You know, and it, you hope it's successful, but it is a kind of a very experimental thing to do. Um, you have to experiment the translation. It's not, a, it's not a concrete activity. It's not saying, okay, take this book off of the table and put it over there. It's not like that, right? It's, it's, it's a, there's so many ways you can do that, um, and you have to pick the right way or a way and hope it lands, and, and, and there are just so many factors in the, the so that sense of experimentation, which is reflected in, again, in, by some of the authors in a very acute way, but, but what they're really doing is experimenting who they are. Mm-hmm. They're ex- experimenting with themselves and their identities in a, in a positive way, you know, not in a, in a grotesque, inhuman mm-hmm. way in which, in where, how, you know, yes, human beings also, again, back to Frankenstein, but, but they're experimenting in a positive, creative you know, way that, that, that enhances their humanity and their connection to the world. Um, I found this so inspiring. Yeah, we need some of that right now, definitely. You mentioned how surprised you were that so many writers or 
also translators. It got me thinking how people tend to think of the writer as the creative artist and the translator as just a minor person. When translators are writing, you mentioned experimentation and all that, and how you've been translating your whole life. So how do you see that relationship, you know, that artistic achievement of a writer and a translator, and how they relate to each other? I mean, it's something I, th I think about a lot, and actually, I just gave a lecture uh, in Rome a few weeks ago. Of, I was asked to give a a, um, Magistrale, so like a keynote thing for a university uh, opening um, ceremony of a university semester, and they said, you can write on what you like, and I said, well, okay, I'm going to write about translation. <laughs> and I wrote, uh, I wrote a lecture on... Um, I actually sort of thought back to the first time I taught translation at Princeton and what was the first, what, how I opened up that conversation with my students and what I did, this was a class I taught three, year, three years ago, what I did was I had them read The Myth of Echo and Narcissus by Ovid, uh, as told by Ovid. Um, and I wanted them to read this myth and think about and tell me why it was relevant to the conversation of, of translation. Um, so I, I sort of went back and I picked up that that first lesson, and I sort of and, and for the for the lesson I wrote for the for Rome in Rome the other day, I wanted to understand more deeply what that impulse was about on my part, because in the meantime, I have become talking about Ovid and the idea of metamorphosis. So I've I've sort of changed right my own identity. I've, I've altered it, I've added to it, whatever, um, over the years, and first writing in Italian, then translating now, um, editing, you know, sort of working as a capacity editor, as you said, now teaching. So all of these things are sort of new pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. of who I am. But I'm really struck because I find, I, you know, so many people, when I've told them, you know, they say, well, what are you working on? And I say, I'm translating. I'm translating the work of Domenico Starnone, Italy's greatest living writer. And you know, there are people who almost look at you know they they almost look at me with sort of pity of oh you must you you you're one of those writers who maybe you're done with writing. You don't have anything else to say. You, you know, no more ideas coming from you. Why are you doing that? But that's not your own book. Why would you do that? There were a lot of questions like that, and I thought. Oh my God, if you only knew what an amazing time I'm having and the things I'm learning and how I'm growing as a writer and as a person. I mean, it was just this complete disconnect because I do think that there is this attitude of like the writer, the great writer, the creator, um, and the translator sort of technically putting something together in another language, which is so not true. Just so, so, such a distorted and naive way of thinking about translation in that sense of the translator, the translator is the sort of echo figure who's just saying back something that's already being, being said, and somehow that's inferior. Whereas in fact, Narcissus, poor Narcissus, the one who can't stop looking at himself, is the one who ends up pretty badly, um, worse off, I would say, than Echo, who actually lives on in the myth, and her voice lives on. Mm -hmm. And Echo has something fundamental to the translator's craft, which is empathy. And in fact, even after Narcissus dies, even after he's been so cruel to her, 
and just sort of like completely freaked out by being touched by her and just runs and runs away from her as if, you know, she was some sort of horrible disease. He dies, he's transformed into a flower, very nice, but whatever. But she is the one whose voice lives on. And she actually is so moved by his suffering that she accompanies him down into the underworld and joins in his mourning. So, I mean, it's just an amazing example of what the translator actually is, who the translator actually is, and the attitude of the translator actually is the one who survives the writer. And that is also the truth. You know, for writers, we have to know this, that it's in translation that a book, if a book is meant to make the great journey through time, it's only through translation that that book can really move across these, bo- these linguistic borders. And that, and, and I think what's, what, disti- what, what makes the translator's work so important is that, I mean, yes, the, the work, the art, the work of the writer is sort of, you know, there's this huge guilt frame set around it. It's the original, it can't be touched, you know, it's the work. Um, and that's great. It's, it's wonderful to read a work in the original. It is. I'm not denying that. But it's in translation that so many of these works have new life and new relevance for new generations. So that's, I think, um, I think that's something for us all to think about. Because it's only through translation that, that, that the work kind of moves through time, even if it's in another language. So, okay, you lose the contact with the original, okay, but if it's done well, if it's done responsibly, if it's done, if it's done by a real, by someone who knows how to write, then that work will move through time in, in ways that it might not in the original. So, you know, someone who reads Dante in the original has the privilege of reading Dante in the original, but then if someone reads, or, or Homer, for example, there's a new translation of Homer, Okay, you can read Homer in ancient Greek, but then if you read the original, there might, it might be appealing to readers today, now, in ways that it can't mm. if someone were to read it in ancient Greek. So I think this is very interesting, and it, and it, it says something to me, because it's, it, because it's only by... I mean, I teach now, so I see the actual situation in the room where you say, this is Kafka, guys. This is Kafka. Nobody's excited. And you're, oh my God, how is the world going to survive without, you know, university students going absolutely crazy for Kafka? Like, how is this even possible? But it's the truth, right? So then you have to find the translation that speaks to them. And that's the role. So then I go and I look at this translation, I look at that translation. I mean, you know, if you read the Metamorphosis, fortunately, there are like 12 translations of that story. So you can find the one that's really going to hit home with them, yeah. you know? Because again, it's like an interpretation. And then in that way, we won't be here in 100 years to make sure people are reading Kafka, right? So you have to, it's a way of reinvigorating. Mm-hmm. Um, yes? Um, I was just wondering, I know you said last question. <laughs> um, would you go as far as even changing the sense of what the author wanted to say in the first place? What, I'm, what I mean is, for the example, sense. I'll give you an example. Uh, 1984 was translated into French by somebody in the 50s or 40s. It has been retranslated by José Camon, who's a well-known uh, translator. And she has decided to put everything in the present tense. 
<coughs> and this has uh, resulted in a major controversy now. And that, you know, there's a lot of issues about whether or not this uh, woman had a responsibility to actually um, say what uh, the writer wanted to say in the first place, or is she actually adding something to the sense of the, of the book, which was intended at the, at the time that he wrote it? Well, I mean, I think there are translations and then there are translations, right? So you can sort of take a very soap and water approach to the translation and really just try to work with what's there and transport it you know, and, and be quote-unquote faithful, which doesn't really exist. But you can, you can aim toward a sort of this is, you know, or you can then start playing with things, including the meaning of things. But I think, I think if you do that, if you choose to do that, if that's your way of interpreting the work you're translating, I, I think that has to be explained. I think that's where something like a translator's preface can be very helpful to say, look, this is the work. I've read it in the original. I'm now working with it in this other language. I've made these choices. These are the reasons for my choices. And then I think the reader is informed, right? But I, but I think that that's, again, that's why I think we need, we don't need just, the, the translation lends itself to, I mean, just look at this example of the metamorphosis, one of the world's you know, greatest short stories ever, which has right now in print, I don't know. I mean, I just taught this Kafka course last year, so I know. I think there are like eight or nine versions of the Metamorphosis translated that you can buy in the bookstore. I actually went to the bookstore in Princeton to buy, and I was, I was struck by there was like all of these Metamorphoses versions in print. Um, so if you have more than one and the reader is informed, then maybe one reader will say, I don't want to read that translation. I'll read this other translation. But... I mean, translation has always been a controversial issue, even without these, you know, um, these uh, uh, these more radical choices, shall we say. Um, I think, in general, it's a controversial form. People are suspicious of it. Uh, people have always been suspicious of it, and I think partly it's sort of our are a primordial suspicion of the of the person who doesn't belong in one place and the person that has this sort of capacity to move between right and you then you think well whose side are you on um, I think there's something about that and, and I think a lot of people I mean so many people just don't want to read me in translation they just tell me that they say please write in English again I don't want to read you in translation as if I don't know what that means right um, or they say, uh, I can't read you anymore. It's so frustrating. And I say, well, but there's translation. I, you know, it's a, I don't want that. You know, um, I want the real you. And I, I think these are really interesting questions to think about. They, they, they're, they're questions I ask myself. Like, what is that? Who is the real me? I don't know. Can be a very long conversation, <laughs> but I, I do think about these things a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you for your questions. Um, please, I really urge you to, to buy this book, to read any of Jumper's books that you haven't read. Um, it, uh, that's a guaranteed wonderful and amazing experience. As this has been, I'd just like to thank uh, Jumper Lahiri. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.